Hi, I'm Dave Miller at DriveWithDave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. I'm excited about today's guest as he may know you better than you know yourself when it comes down to buying a car. Graduating from Princeton, he's sitting patiently listening to the commencement address, and as most graduates do, contemplating his education and his life ahead. After the ceremony, he's filling boxes with the bits and pieces of college life that we all accumulate in those years. In walks his mom and dad, and his dad says, Son, you just graduated from one of the most prestigious universities in the country. You've got the world at your feet. There are places to go, people to meet, and things to see. And then he says, Forget that shit. Let's sell cars. To almost a household name in the Midwest, my guest today continues a family way of life in the automotive industry started by his grandfather, who was a Chicago Packard dealer back in the 20s. I want to welcome to the show today, Rob Mancuso. Rob, welcome. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. How are you? I'm doing just great. And I, I appreciate that intro because that was a uh, seminal moment uh, in my in my career and a story that I've told often. I, I know I only told you once, so you have a very good memory to remember that. <laughs> Actually, I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a very good typing arm, and that's how I remember those kinds of things. I did take that out of your book, of course. Rob has uh, published a book, Assume the Position. I've read it several times, and I looked on Amazon yesterday. There was only one copy left, so Rob, you may have to put that into reprinting. I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to do that. And you know, to be honest with you, Dave, the book was uh, was more a, a cathartic labor of love than anything else. But uh, I had just learned so much growing up uh, in the family business and had been asked to advise and consult to other dealer families and companies that I thought, why not just write it down? And it was fun to write. And it was actually used at the Notre Dame School of Business for a while as part of their syllabus. I'm not sure that that's still current, but for a period of time it was. And uh, some of the things I learned uh, could maybe save some heartburn for some other folks if they're involved in family business, which is most of the businesses actually in the United States. So may have some application there. Rob, I've got to ask you, so were you interested in cars as a kid or was that just come with the territory? I was... Uh, I was born to do this. I mean, even if you look at my initials, my initials are RPM. <laughs> I didn't. What's your what's the middle name? My middle name is is Pope. It's my mother's maiden name. But okay, the, but the monogram is RPM. I mean, I there was no way out of this deal. Um, <laughs> but actually, um, Dave, you know, growing up, uh, my dad was a Chevrolet dealer, and there was nothing else in the world that. I thought of or that I wanted to do and my my entire focus in my life until I grew up and discovered there were also girls in the world uh -huh. was automobiles and uh, there was never any doubt in that it's funny to talk about the post-graduation discussion with my father but uh, I mean that was real I mean I went through four years of great education I had a degree in psychology I could have gone on to get a master's or a doctorate because I was really interested in it but mm -hmm. There was just no doubt in my mind that I wanted to get back home as soon as I could and get involved with his Chevrolet dealership, uh, which I did. 
And then he went on, he was generous enough at the time to purchase an additional store a couple years later, a very small Cadillac dealership, and teach me the, the managerial ropes. I had grown up in the business. When I was 10 and 12, I was spending time in the summers and on weekends sweeping the floors, putting parts away, things like that, and I loved every minute of it. Uh, but he, he was smart, though. He said, I, I'm not insisting you enter the business but if you want to do it, I'm going to teach you how to do it right. Mm -hmm. And he said, frankly, it might be easier for me if you don't enter the business because there were two brothers. My mm -hmm. other brother, Rick, is a dealer, a Ferrari dealer. And at the time, we were both working for my father. And my father said, you know, guys, it would actually be easier for me to have independent employees, if you will, if you want to use that term, versus family members because it gets difficult. But if you really, really want it, I'll, I'll do everything I can to get you started. And he did. And that's that's how I really got into the business. So seminal moment from your dad, the realization in your room, packing up from Princeton, that maybe you should take your degree in psych and get into the automotive business of selling cars. Yeah, and it was um, it was met uh, with some uh, surprise by my roommates, to be honest with you, because I, I, I was lucky enough to be with some pretty high-performing uh friends in college and they went on to become editors of financial m magazines to become uh, to, to get great jobs on wall street uh to become uh involved in, in some of the better known banks in the country and they looked at me and said seriously you're, you're taking this and you're gonna go sell cars and i said you're not seeing the big picture like i see it and i see that there's a lot more to this than simply the sale of a car on, on a regular basis to retail customers my version of this is I want to get into it and I want to grow it, first learn it, the number one, but then grow it and leverage the family name, which as we speak today, Dave, we're just a few years shy of 100 years in the business, or as my brother likes to call it, our first 100 years. Congratulations. So we're working hard on that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and having said that, by no means do we know it all. I think I... I honestly think I know less about the business now than I did a long time ago because I think there wasn't as much to know uh, when I got out of college. You know, Rob, I think, I believe anyway, that I met you for the very first time. Of course, I know the family name. I know your brother. Um, but I think the very first time I met you was when you opened your shop down uh, in Chicago on, on Clark and Huron. And I'm not certain how that came about, but I do remember meeting you there. Give me, uh, I, I know we're going to jump over a couple of things here, but give me a thumbnail description of your operation in Chicago now. Well, um, it's interesting the way this came to be. Um, I, I can say that I've been in the auto industry my entire working life. Now, there was a diversion from that. When for a little over a decade, I went to work for a large uh, insurance brokerage and consulting company called Aon Corporation, sure. it's a Fortune 250 company. Mm -hmm. I sold, uh, I had an opportunity to sell four rooftops to a mega dealer, and I did it uh, back in the 90s. And then I took 10 years off, uh, off of the retail side. I went to work for Aon. I did some consulting work for them in China, did some corporate communication and marketing work for them, and really learned the corporate side of the business. So they had and have clients like the Penske organization, Lithia, Sonic, uh, et cetera, these huge publicly traded companies. And we were fortunate enough, AutoNation is another one, to have the opportunity to interface with these companies, supply them with products, supply them with training. And 
I learned a lot from the corporate side, mm -hmm. knowing full well that ultimately, ultimately I wanted to get back into the business, but not the way I was in it before. What I did before was I got started with my father's Chevrolet dealership. He was nice enough to get me started with a small Cadillac store. They were selling 18 or 20 cars a month. Mm, wow. And little store and we got it and our timing was good and started to sell a few more cars. He then was kind enough to let me buy him out, which meant I owned the whole darn thing when I was about 27 or 28 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, right about the same time, a company that no one had heard much about in the 80s, Honda, made a tour through town. And uh, this all sounds like I'm making it up now, but they made a, a tour through the town I was in and they were looking for a dealer to handle their automobile products. And of the 12 dealers in the small town of Barrington outside of Chicago where I got started, 11 of them went very nicely threw them out and said, we have no interest in handling that product. Mm -hmm. So they came to me and said, what about you? And I said, I have no interest in handling your product. So they said, well, it's, it's, it, we're really looking for a dealer. We'd really like you to consider it. So I told them no. Shortly thereafter, maybe three or four months later, the Honda rep came back and he said, we really want someone to take this ticket. No one else will talk to us. And I said, well, what would it cost? And they said, well, it would probably cost five or $7,000 for signage and tools and another seven or $8,000 in parts. Well, at that time, that was all the money in the world. Mm -hmm. So I called up my father and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, it doesn't sound like a big risk. I don't think you'll do anything with it. And I said, nor do I, but why not take it on? So at that point, we took the franchise on through Honda and with Cadillac. For a number of years, we had Cadillac and Honda running parallel in the showroom. Some of the best years I've had in the business. We had the market bracketed. If we couldn't sell a Honda, we could sell a Cadillac. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Honda went on to become what Honda now is, and it made all of us more fortunate enough to be Honda dealers back then look really good. So then we picked up some additional franchises. We picked up Saab. I picked up Maserati. We even had Peugeot for a time. Uh -huh. And grew those companies and then sold those to, a, as I mentioned earlier, to a uh, to a mega dealer. So that's how I got into my tenure. I call it hiatus, but I learned a lot during that ten years. And when I came back to the business, which was my goal, I wanted to do an urban because I live in downtown Chicago, boutique, uh, small staff, real niche business where. We would have five or six employees instead of, I used to have, at one point we had 150 employees, mm -hmm. five or six employees, we would hand select the cars, um, and we would meet very interesting people. So I, I even know a guy that does podcasts that's driving <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's a very famous blog. I think it's called Drive with Dave. Anyway, so we meet very interesting people uh, in this setting. So initially we started out. Uh, and our business model was was a little different than it is right now. Uh, at the time, my brother was a McLaren dealer, and McLaren gave us permission to operate as a satellite showroom in downtown Chicago for his franchise. And we did that for the first year and a half or two years, which was which was great. My McLaren product is terrific. Mm -hmm. Along the way, we learned that there were people looking for lots of other cars down here. They were looking for one and two and three year old AMG Mercedes. Uh, um, Anything that BMW had with lots of horsepower. They were looking for Range Rovers. They were looking for five and 10 year old Ferraris. So we started to change our model mix around to the point where, as we sit here now and I look out at the showroom, what we have is just what I described. We've got two and three year old SL63 uh, AMG Black Series. We've got uh, brand new Lotus products, which we became a, a Lotus dealer about a year ago. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a mix of older 911s, some newer 911s, some Gran Turismos, some Vantage V8s, 
It's sexy, sexy stuff. If it's fast and probably comes from outside the U.S., it's the kind of stuff we want to sell. Rob, you were nice enough a couple of weeks ago when I was back in the Windy City to give me uh, a little bit of time with the newest product, the 2017 Lotus Evora 400. I absolutely love the car. It was just wonderful. Uh, but uh, give me your thoughts. Well, it's one of those cars, I'll, I'll say, I'll use the P word. It's similar to Porsche in that when they bring out a new car, they'll say the car is 80% new parts and from maybe 100 feet away you go, looks like the same car, mm. and it's totally not. It's totally a different car, and that's how the new 400 is. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the increase in horsepower, with the increase in the in the size of the tires and wheels and brakes, the lightning of the car, the increased downforce, the enhancement of the interior, the new gearbox, it's a totally different car. And when we have people in that have driven the old Evora, and we put them in the new car. They can't believe it's a car from the same manufacturer, Dave. It's just been amazing to us that they were able to do what they did uh, with this new car. You know, we rate cars in one way, and that's the way they sound. And it may, may be a silly way to do it. But that's not an area that uh, Lotus has ever excelled in. But you drove that car. Yeah. And with that new exhaust system, people know you're coming. And that's been real helpful to us in selling the car. And I have to admit, I'm with you, Rob. I think I tend to be fetishistic about exhaust sounds. And that car sounded in sport. You hit that button and everything about that car goes from being very nice to very, very serious in a heartbeat. And you, uh, I had my choice. You had said pa- paddle shift or stick. And I had to go with a stick. Smooth, easy, short, just a, just a wonderful automobile. And I would imagine this is the car that Lotus has been looking for for the future in terms of uh, uh, getting back on track. That's absolutely right. And back to the sound for a minute. For a guy driving a Vantage V8 to say he really likes the sound, mm-hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. That car has about as good a sound as you can get in the marketplace. Isn't that the truth? And I want to mention, too, that uh, I I was out uh, doing a video on that car, and that video is available on drivewithdave.com as well. Rob, let me stop you for one second. You graduated with a degree in psychology from Princeton. I have to guess that has helped you understand people when they are looking to purchase a car. Let me start with this. I think as valuable as understanding our customers, it has enabled me to better understand and work with our employees. Because to me, that's really the biggest challenge we face. I think probably any business owner, Mm -hmm. if you talk to them about where there's friction or heartburn, it's usually on the employee side. I mean, we all want customers that want to spend more money and come back more often. That's unique, not just to us. That's every business. I think it's really helped me work with our staff. And you mentioned before, Rob, I think it was, uh, you have four or five people that are employed down at uh, Mancuso? There's six of us total right okay. now. Mm-hmm. That that must mean that somewhere along the line, you are intimately uh, involved in the day-to-day operations? I am. What I'm seeing now as the business has grown, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how it's grown, by the way. In 2013, we opened in July, and that those two quarters, we only sold nine cars. Now we were selling McLarens and, right. and some other high-priced stuff. We only sold nine cars. 2014, we started to mix up our inventory, and we sold 86. 2015, we sold 172. Last year, we sold 264. This year, I think realistically, we'll sell 300 or 350. Wow. So the, the, the concept of managing the staff 
became just as critical as anything that I, I could be doing with my time. But that's the challenge of the small business. And that's one of the things that makes it, to be honest with you, a lot attractive to a lot of people. So the psychology degree has helped me to work with our staff, no doubt. It's made me be more empathetic to their needs and to push my needs to the side. Um, and from a consumer standpoint, from our prospects and people that walk in, I think the best way to explain it, maybe to summarize it, would be it's shown me the value and given me some of the tools to build a relationship with our customers pre-sale, uh, and then it, usually it flows into, into after we sell the car. And Dave, that's all become so much more difficult. When I started in business, if I was selling you a car, you were sitting across a desk from me. Yeah. We now sell 60 or 70% of our cars out of state. We never meet the customer. We never have a chance to get to know each other. We get offers that fly back and forth digitally, which is a whole different way of negotiating than you and I two feet away, eyeball to eyeball. So Rob, you're bringing in that I word, the internet. And I know that that's changed the car business over the last, what, decade, two decades, whatever it is. Right. How, how, does that, how does that compare with the old days? Before sitting across from the desk, now you're selling things. Is that a different, is that a different take on selling cars? What's, what's changed about that? Just about everything. I'll, I'll give you a quick, a quick story here. It, right around 1990, I hired a, uh, a software developer and, and daisy-chained three iMacs together in our Cadillac showroom so a customer could come in, go to one, because the computing power was so poor back then, I needed three computers. They'd go to the first computer and punch in, mm -hmm. I would like to buy a, a sedan de ville or a coupe de ville. These are the options. These are the specs. And then that would print out the manufacturer's suggested retail, and it would print out our cost, and it would print out our fixed price for that car, built-in margin. They literally had to stand next to that machine and go to a new one and say, I'm trading in a, a Buick, a Lincoln Continental, a Mercedes-Benz, whatever it was. And we had the data... It was sketchy, but we had enough data to say, this is probably what your trading will be worth. That was a separate printout. It took two computers, complete separate computers to do that. Computer number three was input the amount of the difference between your trade value and what we're selling our car for. Put in how many payments you want to pay and what your down payment is, and we'll tell you what your actual payment will be. So we had three computers set up that could actually take the salesperson out of the negotiating process totally. I set this thing up, we named it System 123, which we thought was really futuristic. The local media came out and thought we were really onto something. Cutting edge, but, cutting edge, yeah. Cutting edge, the national media came out, I still have the video, and they were looking at this thing and they said, this guy's discovered the future. And now I'll fast forward to six months down the road, all that was in the dumpster in the alley because everyone at that point in time only wanted to talk to a salesperson and didn't trust a computer to give them any information relevant to their purchase. Mm -hmm. So that was where we were then. And where we are now is almost the complete opposite. Now, all of that is good. I think it's good that the consumers are more educated. I think because when they come into us, they know a lot about the car. They know sometimes we might say too much because uh -huh. there's also instant comps to look at. Mm -hmm. Now, that also happens to work 
to the favor of the dealer. Because in most cases, you're trading me a car. Mm-hmm. And as you will look at my car, especially a pre-owned car, and tell me what the comps are, gee, I think I better look at yours. Sure. So now it's a different playing field, and it's more data-based than relationship-based. Um, it's given us a, a much easier way to track leads. We know exactly where our leads come from. I can say without a doubt that 100% of our sales are generated over the Internet. I had someone say, well, that can't be true. What about the guy that lived across the street from you? You told me in that high-rise that came in last Saturday and bought an old Porsche. I said, well, he went to Google first before he came in, mm-hmm. and he found that we had the car. It just happened to be across the street. So it's 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 challenging from the standpoint, Dave, that we no longer have the fundamental relationship values as a, as a platform and a bedrock for the deal. It's strictly numbers and analysis now. So you are telling me that I was the odd duck, the odd bird that walked into your showroom, found an automobile, and we made that deal damn fast. You may have been the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I bought uh, I bought an Aston Martin a couple of years back from from Rob because it was the right car, the right colors, the right options, the right time and place, and I I couldn't have been happier. But but it sounds like I'm the one, the one guy out of the thousand that actually walked into your showroom and bought something. Yeah, there's not many left, Dave. I mean, the days of people driving by and pulling in and walking around and making a deal. That's just doesn't happen like that too much anymore. Not in my end of the business. If I was selling Kias or or Toyotas or Mazdas, it might be a little different discussion. So that also begs the question then, Rob, if if things have changed so much and the internet has changed everything and relationships, especially uh, when people are looking for cars that you're selling, has is has morphed into the digital world. What's that say about five or ten years from now? In your in your opinion, I don't know how much is left in the process that we can take out because it seems what we're doing all the time is diluting the process. We're compressing the time frame on the customer side to look for cars. Then when they find a car, we're compressing the time frame for negotiations. Gone are the days of four, three and four hour battles across the desk mm-hmm. to, to to hammer out a deal. Then we're compressing the time that it takes to to complete the transaction. I mean, we do everything digitally. Mm-hmm. We'll do everything remotely. We'll send you electronically signed documents. It's really an email back uh, one way and an email the other way. And the deal's consummated and the deal's funded. So I, I don't, I'm still looking to see how much we can still dilute the deal. I, and, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Tell me in a few words, what makes me the kind of client you want to work with. So I, I've decided that I want uh, a 2014 Porsche. You've got a car that has some of the stuff that I want. I'm looking at you. I'm living in Los Angeles. Um, what makes me a good client in terms of the sale process? Well, we always start with the R word, which is reasonable. Hmm. Uh, we think a reasonable customer does all their homework and can come in and they can tell us. They've looked up all the comps. But they understand that a 40,000-mile car is different than a 20,000-mile car. Mm-hmm. They understand that a black car is worth more money than a red car, mm-hmm. if, it, if it is in that particular case. Mm-hmm. They understand that you don't automatically hit the clean button when getting the KBB evaluation of your car. Mm-hmm. You know, We can really shortcut all of that um, 
uh, of the whole process to the degree that uh, the customer's done their homework correctly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we like that. I mean, that's someone that comes in with that kind of uh, homework done, we think that's terrific. That must shorten the deal. It does. And we're not, we're not in search of speed, but usually it, we'll use the word facilitates the deal. Ooh, like it. I want to talk about business uh, for one second from a little bit different aspect. You know, the jacket cover of your book, uh, Assuming the Position, is a guide to learning, surviving a family business. But and, and there are a lot of family businesses out there, but I've read this book now twice. It's short, uh, pithy. Uh, the principles of your book, they, they have to relate to all businesses. Yeah, I think they do. I've shared it with, uh, with friends who have family businesses, and they say it, it really is the same. I mean, you look at family members, and and everyone thinks they're entitled to a position in the company. Maybe f- through their DNA they are, but you've got to search for the best spot. You've got to search for the best reward. You've got to search for the best working arrangement. You've got to search you know, deeply and find out what their expectations and their hopes are. People from the same family can have completely different avenues into a business that that they find their passion in. And it can be as simple in the automobile business as a family that I worked with in California, where it turned out, instead of having the two sons fighting about who would become general manager, the answer was one of them should be general sales manager and the other guy who liked to turn wrenches should be the service director. Mm-hmm. So there's there's different ways to enter the business. And and that's not unique to, to the automobile business. It could be manufacturing, it could be legal, it could be probably just about anything. So yeah. I was worried you were gonna say those those two brothers turned to dueling to settle, to settle their needs, but no. Well that has happened. We've got some pretty good stories about that too. But okay. uh, uh, but the book the book was uh, was done because I wanted to get all my thoughts down in one place and um, I wanted to be kind to my parents who provided me the opportunity to get into this business and explain to other families that you know you should be grateful when your family gives you a start in the business you should not act like you created it yourself you should not shut down the older generation when they want to give you advice because it's 20 year old advice and you should not consider yourself uh, to be any more privileged than the other employees in the company. In fact, if you're smart, you'll work longer hours and you'll work harder than everybody else. So there's things that I learned the hard way. My father told me about them and I believed him, but a lot of those things I guess I needed to learn the hard way. You know, Rob, was it was it your quote or your dad's quote? And I loved it. I underlined it. Appreciate the value of experience and use it as a template for the future. Was that you or your dad? That was That was my dad. That was that was his, and uh, and that was the best way to say it because he no, he, he no more told me what to do than he would simply say if I were you I would consider this. Why, why don't you think about this? And I'll tell you a, a very short quip that he made one day, and I think I was I was uh, overwhelmed. We had we had four franchises, and all the manufacturers have reps that visit you. They have a sales rep, they have a service rep, they have a parts rep, they have a leasing rep, they have a financial rep. And it seems at one time I said, I, I need a guy here just to handle all the factory reps. Guy can't even get through the day. Mm. And I was about to get real tough on one of the guys that showed up without an appointment. And my father said to me, he said, treat the lowest guy on that totem pole like he's running that company because mm. someday he probably will be. Mm. Interesting. And I'm, I'm, I've been in the business long enough to see some of that happen. 
mm-hmm. where the entry-level guy on the lowest rung of the ladder who was doing his tour of duty as the service warranty auditor went on to run service for Chevrolet and went on to become a general sales manager for Chevrolet. So there were times where we really needed to to kind of regroup and slow down and, and absorb some of the advice that we could get from, from my father. It sounds like your dad has sprinkled a lot of great advice throughout your business world. I love the uh, bad cash flow is better than no cash flow. <laughs> I laughed when I'd read that. Well, that one came from me because I've been there. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the lifeblood of our business. And that's, if you talk to anyone in this business, that's, that's one of the major challenges that we have. It's, it's, uh, it's capital intensive with small margins. You don't do this because it's easy. And you don't do it because you, you want to sleep soundly through the night. Um, this is a tough business. We have no recurring revenue stream, especially us. We've got, we're, we're sales only in this urban environment. Everything's very expensive to do in the, in the downtown environment in Chicago. So we have a showroom only. We outsource, we outsource inspections. We outsource service. We outsource body work and detail. We outsource storage. Mm-hmm. So a big part of my job and my partner's job is to bring all this together as best we can. And, and to that point, I should mention, Dave, that one of the things I did, uh, I was lucky enough when we got the company started to be introduced to a guy that's now a partner in my company. He's exactly half my age. Came to the company with with just long and great experience in specialty car acquisition, reconditioning, and sales, which I didn't know how valuable that would be at first because I thought we were just going to sell new McLarens. And now that I look at our business model now, uh, my partner, Frank Rohde, has just become indispensable to us. Yeah. And I give him a lot of credit for where we are today because I couldn't do it without him. Frank's a great guy. You know, I have to ask a couple of other questions. Your dad had given you such great advice. He was a great mentor to you. And if you had to do that, if you were sitting around with a young kid graduating from college today, he or she would sit there and want to be told what? What advice would you give them right now? Somebody just coming out of school. Well, I think I would tell them if they didn't have a uh, a business degree to probably get an MBA because I think that the scale of these businesses has changed so much. And from an operation standpoint, it has changed so much that you need skill sets that, you know, really I didn't need when I got in the business. The way to be a to, to be successful when I got in the business was to be a really good salesman. Mm-hmm. That's how my dad got in the business. When he, you know, his family was in the business for years and that was in upstate New York. Then he moved here to Chicago and went to work for what used to be a factory-owned Cadillac dealership. They used to own their own stores. He became the best salesman, borrowed some money, and became a Chevy dealer. But now to run these companies, to look at the capitalization that's required, the credit facilities that are required, the real estate, the personnel, the training, the liability side, I would say, seriously, I'd say get an MBA and or a law degree if you want to go after this in a serious way. Now, if you want to become a boutique collector and do something kind of on the small side, maybe like we're doing, not so sure all that's required. But if you're looking at any kind of a mainstream or more domestic franchise, uh, I think you really have to you really have to be educated to do it. Let's say cars no longer existed, which would be, you know, you're in my worst nightmare. If if you weren't in the car business, Rob, what would you do? Oh, I know right now what I'm going to do and I'm going to write. Hmm. 
I'm, I've, I've enjoyed writing and, and not just because of the one book I did on business. I've always enjoyed writing and, uh, I'm actually working on a novel right now. I just haven't had enough time to throw at it, but that's exactly what I would do. And would I be associated with the car industry? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I've had a really, I've had a terrific run. I've been in it right now for a little over 40 years mm-hmm. and, uh, I come in here every day and I love it. But, uh, at some point, uh, who knows, who knows? I know I'll always enjoy cars. And I know that, as my wife says, I could never get away from it. Whenever I talk about old franchises and old relationships with the manufacturers, she says, you look back at those things like you look back at all your old girlfriends. You forget about all the bad times. <laughs> <laughs> Is Gail a car gal? Does she appreciate automobiles? She does. I mean, she appreciates she appreciates the art of the car because uh-huh. she is an artist. So she appreciates the, the art, the styling. Um, she doesn't have the stomach uh, that I need to have for the operational side, mm-hmm. but she does understand and respect and appreciate the industry. Mm-hmm. The industry has been really good to my family. Mm-hmm. I'm third generation. There's a fourth generation up at my brother's store. You know, Chicago has been good to my family. We've been in this business here a long time and we've sold, I don't know, 35 or 40,000 cars into this market. Wow. I know some of the big consolidators do that in a year, but we were, we were a one family owned store when we started. So, uh, uh, we all love the business. I have a son who's interested in the business, but he's a, he's a partner in a web development company. So that's a little different direction for my side of the family to not have a son or a daughter that's very interested in taking over the business. But, but that's the way it should go. We all have to follow whatever our passion is. I know it's a cliche, but it remains true. So Rob, money no object. You've just won the Powerball. What one car in the world would you own and why? You know, very tough question for me because when you're in the business, as you know, Dave, there are so many wonderful cars and they all serve a different purpose. It's kind of like asking what your favorite food is. Mm-hmm. It depends on how you feel that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would put the McLaren P1 at the top of the of the pile and probably right behind it, I put the Ferrari TDF. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The new, uh, the new F12 TDF? It just totally gets me going. Yeah. I think those would be right at the top. So you're a new car guy. I really am. And it's interesting because uh, we get some very wonderful vintage older cars in here that we do well with. And my heart rate does not go up like it does with new cars. And I don't know how to explain that other than that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've, you, I know you just returned from London. Is the car experience different over there? Do you find it's a different world car-wise? Well, where we were was a real nice part of London, and we were surrounded by uh, a lot of nice cars. And it was great to see a lot of Ferrari product uh, and a lot of McLaren product, even a lot of Lotus product over there. What I gained a new respect for, maybe because I had not spent too much time in one before, and it was just because a friend had one, was uh, Rolls-Royce Phantom, Mm. to be honest. I'd never been in the car. Uh-huh. And you see, you see them running around London, and you go, boy, they they just belong here. Yeah. They just this is where this is where they belong, and they they make the city look better, and the city makes them look better. So I saw a lot of cars in that in that strata that I hadn't seen before, and enjoyed some of them. So um, tough city to drive a, a, a fast car in. Oh yeah, but it's not too long to the to the. Uh, to the English countryside, though. So I think everybody finds a way to get those cars revved up. You've been all over the world, of course. I'm sure regularly take on car events if you can. Are there a couple of favorites, don't miss events, things that you would tell people to go to? So I'm going to be the most boring interview you've had here because I feel 
strongly about the Chicago Auto Show. Okay. I, I know it's the biggest show in North America, and I'm not sure if it's the largest show in the world because I know Geneva can be up there in terms of attendance and square footage. But when you have a million people come through a million square feet, um, it's just an incredible event, and there's there's not much that you can't see at the Chicago Auto Show that's that you'd find anywhere else. Um, there's other venues that are perhaps sexier, Geneva and Paris, you know, come to mind. Yeah. But uh, but in terms of of what you want to see in volume and in quantity and uh, new releases and an opportunity as you and I get to go in a day or two before and watch the manufacturer introductions and, and interface with those guys. Uh, I just think the Chicago show is the greatest one in the world. You know, I, I want to mention just a couple of things before we do our wrap up here. And one of the great lines, and, and you've got a bunch in assuming the position. I thought there were some funny quips. But I remember when I bought that Aston Vantage from you. Oh, now I think it's a couple of years ago. Uh, we had uh, paid the car. And then I said, Rob, I need it shipped out to California, out to Los Angeles. But um, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to need it for a while. And you looked at me and I remember you, t you talking to Frank. And you, you said this was probably the best thing in the entire world you've sold the car, you've gotten the money, and you get to keep it. I still talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we like that deal. Yeah, I thought you did. We've talked a lot about business, and Rob, I want to congratulate you on winning the Better Business Bureau Torch Award. Thanks, Dave. We are so proud of this. And I'll be honest with you, I did not know what a big deal this was. Mm -hmm. uh, we've won awards in the past from various organizations, but in the entire city of Chicago, all the businesses, and there's big names here. There's Boeing, there's United, there's Aon, there's, I mean, name the company. And all the individually owned businesses. And all of Northern Illinois, the Better Business Bureau awards six torch awards based on business ethics. And we were nominated, we were vetted, we completed and submitted the 15 pages of documentation we had to create uh, to show that we were worthy of this thing. And we won it. And it was on... Uh, it was on local TV. It was good for us. It was good for my staff. And I give them all the credit. But we're very, very proud of that. Well, and again, congratulations. And based on what you had said uh, about um, uh, your staff, your your team there in Chicago, it sounds like the boss owes them some beer. <laughs> that's, that's never a problem. <laughs> well, you know, the things I've taken away from you this morning, of course, is I think one, one of the things for me is uh, eliminating buyer's remorse. If people do their homework, it's going to be a lot easier for them to understand why your car is priced the way it is and exactly what their car is worth. And of course, you've been in family business now and you mentioned you're getting older, 40 years and the applicability of the family business to, to businesses everywhere, the importance, certainly the importance of, of teamwork and staffing. Turning a profit means more than just you doing it. You have to have a good group of people working with you and understanding their viewpoint, not just yours. Rob, where's the best place to contact you? The best way to reach me would be at, uh, anyone can call directly. I'm at 312-787-0400. 6-7. That's directly into the dealership. And my email address, as I mentioned earlier, my initials were made for me for this business, rpm <laughs> at mancusomotorsports.com. Rob Mancuso, 
Chicago dealer in downtown Chicago. It's an interesting place to go, even if you want to kick tires and uh, maybe learn a little bit more about business. Uh, I would say do what I did. Wander in one day, decide you want something, and, and close that deal. Um, Rob Mancuso, I want to thank you very much for being on the show, taking out your time this morning. Um, I hope to catch up with you in Chicago soon. Thank you. Sounds great, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think. Go to drivewithdavepodcast.com and find out how to leave us a review on iTunes. I hope it's a good one, which we would very much appreciate. And there's a way to email us your questions, comments, and who you want on the show as well. All the episodes of Drive With Dave Podcast are on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And an overview of all the shows with links can be found on drivewithdave.com. Don't miss an episode. When you subscribe to the podcast, your device will be automatically updated with the new episodes and old ones will be removed after you've listened to them. No work required. And finally, I hope you also check out our bi-monthly newsletter, which will keep you in the know. And you can sign up at drivewithdave.com.